Dear listener, if you're a true aficionado of this podcast, then you would know that over the years we have talked about submarines a heck of a lot, and in particular Australia's decision to purchase the uh, submarines from the French group and what a what is just a crazily stupid, incomprehensible decision it was from the very beginning. And of course, the news has come out that Australia has cancelled the contract and decided to go with um, a submarine, the details of which we don't quite know much of, other than it will be nuclear and it will be some sort of um, combination of technology from the US and the UK and why we don't just buy another off-the-shelf submarine, why we have to invent something, I don't know. This is still the wrong decision, dear listener, um, in my view. The nuclear submarine, a large submarine, is still the wrong decision, but uh, we'll get onto that in another episode. But the purpose of this episode, dear listener, is a little bonus for you because I was just interested in what we'd said over the years on the submarine issues, and I've cobbled together a, uh, a package from the various episodes where we've had something to say about submarines and it's a little bit of a I told you so type of episode because between Scott and myself um, we talked a lot about submarines and a lot of the issues we identified and the problems have um, come to pass and some of our predictions as well. So there's a bit of a bonus one. It's all about submarines and what we've said over the years. It's nice to hear Scott's voice in there as well. Hello, Scott, if you're out there. And... Um, yeah, the normal episode will happen on Tuesday. There's a bit of a bonus. Sit back if you're interested in submarines and the history of it in Australia over the last six years and uh, sit back and relax and enjoy and we'll talk to you in a regular episode coming up soon. Bye. From episode 43 on the 4th of May 2016. Scott, submarines... Yeah, and that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that is exactly right. Have we discussed this? Sorry. Have we discussed the submarines before or... No, we haven't. Mm. No, we haven't talked about the submarines before. But uh, I was yeah, talking we've... to my friend, who's ex Air Force, about the submarine. He's mm. he's pro submarines, and and equipment and stuff. But he said, the way it works in these sorts of things, and you can just imagine it, is imagine the Defence Department really wanted six submarines. What mm. they do is they ask for twelve. And hope they get given six. <laughs> and if and if they only get three, well, they'll probably live with it. Like that's how that's how these things work. It's 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 like life of Brian and haggling. Like you don't start with your true position. And I I'd be I quietly confident, Scott, that. That they wanted six submarines, they asked for 12 and got the shock of their lives when the answer came back from Tony Abbott saying, yeah, you can have 12. Like, they would have gone, oh, gosh. <laughs> so, like, there's a defence white paper, Scott. It's 180 pages outlining Australia's position and policies on defence. And there's eight paragraphs dealing with submarines. And those paragraphs say nothing of any consequence or detail as to why we need 12. Like, I'm... Here's my view, is we should have three. Like, sure, we can need a submarine, but if China or someone like that is thinking of invading Australia and, and gets together a convoy of naval vessels and heads our way, 
you know, having 12 submarines, the idea is it's a deterrent that they think, geez, we better not go because we might get sunk on the way. And with three of them lurking around, the deterrent's still the same. So um, I just think 12 is... You know, I think if you're going to spend that sort of money, then they need to justify tactically why you need 12. What sort of attack are you anticipating? Why would three be not enough? And why would you need 12? And a real justification. Like, it's an enormous amount of money to spend on just a Mm. gut feel of, oh, 12 seems like the right number. Yeah, and that is exactly right. I mean, um, you know, if we go to that... uh drum article from the ABC in February just the white the just as the white paper was being put to bed it was reported the that RAN submariners will be given annual lump sum payments of up to $50,000 and other inducements just for staying on board mm. now you know if you've got problems filling the bloody things anyway yep it then becomes even worse if you're trying to if you're then going to try and fill new ones Yep. You know, it, it seems to me ridiculous. There's, there's a certain type of person who'd be prepared to, you know, live underwater for months on end and away from home. And, you know, we're not a big country and um, and finding enough people to fill 12 submarines um, would be enormously expensive and, and progressively harder and harder to fill those submarines the more you have. So... Um, so we're having, dear listener, a bit of an internal discussion within the secular party about our policy towards submarines. And one member was saying that, you know, there's economies of scale in having more submarines. But I would argue that they don't apply in terms of manning a submarine. That it actually gets more and more difficult to find guys or girls willing to do it. So, um, so yeah, not happy about submarines, Scott. I reckon our best defence would be a better educated public um, and spending the money on Gonski rather than submarines. Well, either that or a uh, you know better better sophisticated air force maybe. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know or, a, or a missile system like surely you can yeah. launch a missile from somewhere and like all sorts of possibilities for other things. So mm. so Scott, the other thing. Well, in, sorry, go ahead. You, you can spend an awful lot of money for $50 billion. You can. And you can buy an awful lot of missiles, yep. an awful lot of air, aircraft and that sort of stuff with that money. Yeah. So, yeah. Scott, um, $1.2 billion for education rather than the $4.5 billion that's required for Gonski. And in- oh, yeah, but that $1.2 was, it was over and above their initial offer of zero. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> See, that's how the game's played. You see, we're not going to we're not going to give you anything. Oh, okay, we'll give you one point two. You know, yeah. You know, you want twelve submarines? We'll give you six. You know, like, exactly. Tony yeah. Abbott just didn't understand that that bit. But um, I think it was Abbott. It must have been Abbott who made the decision. Is it right? I keep it saying was, Abbott. Abbott. Abbott was prime minister at the time when they started when they started the whole acquisition thing. When, yeah. when they made the commitment, they must have twelve. Yeah. I think. And then it went into tender mm. process. So, yeah. So I can mm-hmm. blame Abbott for that. But um, Yes, you can. From episode 44 on the 11th of May, 2016. Submarines. Yes. 
Who would have thought 12 months ago that we'd know so much about submarines? <laughs> we'll think we know so much. <laughs> but I, I read this. Um, it was Don Menadou, wasn't it? His uh, Pearls and Irritations. Yes. And I don't know, but maybe I'm... It struck me, and you tell me if I've got it wrong. Mm. It struck me that he was arguing that uh, we would have been better off just buying them off the shelves from the French. Is that correct? Exactly. Like, now, here's, the, here's the point that he makes. Like, this submarine that we're buying is actually designed to have nuclear propulsion. Yes. And we, for some reason that has not been explained to me, Scott, are actually paying more money so that instead of nuclear, it's diesel. So it's going to operate, you know, they're not even sure they can do it. And we're going to pay more for that. It's undoubtedly going to be a lesser quality submarine and it's going to cost us more money. Yeah, it's... Why why did we knock nuclear power on the head for a submarine? I don't know that. And I suspect it's because the Australian electorate has a problem with nuclear power full stop. And that, uh, you know... Because it's not it's secular party policy is to pursue nuclear power for a civilian nuclear industry, right? Um, but it's crazy that people are absolutely opposed to nuclear energy. You know, it's it is I, I don't ridiculous. Think, I, don't, I don't think people would be in this case. Um, well, one would hope not, because, I mean, you, you've, you're talking about very small reactors. that You'd have 12 reactors. If you, <coughs> excuse me, if you bought the fleet of 12 subs, you'd only have 12 reactors. They could go back to France to, you know, change out the fuel rods and all that sort of stuff every, however yeah. often you change fuel rods. You know, it's but, not um, ridiculously... <laughs> No, and he makes the point that we'll get them like 10 years earlier, something like that, because they're off the yeah. shelf. And, yeah. um, uh, and you know, they'll have far greater capacity to travel distance at speed. And and I, don't, I can just see that you try and convert a nuclear submarine to diesel and all of the power-hungry electronics in the submarine... Um, will overpower the poor old diesel, you know, generators and, you know, they won't be able to motor along anywhere near what people hope they will. Like, you can just see it happening. So it's a crazy... Here's my proposal, Scott, and we should just have... You know how we said... Well, the Navy probably asked for six, um, wanted six, asked for 12 and would have settled for three. Well, I reckon we give the Navy three nuclear submarines... And they have them nice and early and nice and cheap. And, and you know, Adelaide shipbuilders can learn a skill which can be useful in some other thing. Like the Greens talk about them manufacturing clean energy type things like solar panels or wind farm stuff or whatever. Like stuff that's ongoing, like just creating a few subs of a very specific design for Australia is not going to create ongoing jobs for those guys selling stuff around the world. Like, we won't be exporting submarines to other countries, so we should have them no, doing something. we won't be. 
we should have them doing something where there's a capacity that they could actually make stuff that we could sell around the world of some sort. So, so there we go, Scott. That's uh, submarines and great article by this guy. Um, who is he? It's um, it's, John, it's by John Stanford and Michael Keating, directors of Insight Economics. Previously, they worked together in the Prime Minister's Department, where Dr. Keating was secretary. So they've been involved in government, these guys, and they make the point that it's not too late to amend the decision and deliver a better outcome. The submarines have not yet been designed, commercial terms have not been agreed, and contracts have not yet been signed. So, you know, all of this stuff... You know, changing our minds, we can easily do, Scott. Well, we could easily we could easily change our minds, yes. And it really wouldn't surprise me if, after the election, that uh, minds are changed. Mm. <laughs> so, dear listener, we had a bit of an internal discussion in the Secular Party about submarines because I posed, let's have a policy, instead of 12, we'll have three. And... Um, a little bit of division within the party and one member was sort of saying well what about indonesia you know when the threat of you know military action by indonesia and i've got a very good friend in um defense force who spent a lot of time in indonesia and i said to um i said to noel noel tell me you know an indonesian story about submarines and he came up with a great one and i mentioned it on facebook but for those who haven't did you see the Facebook story or not? Um, I don't recall it, but okay. it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So when he was in Indonesia, this would have been in the 90s, and um, the Indonesians had acquired um, some old Russian submarines, whiskey-class submarines. And yeah. once a year, um, they would um, go down to the, the jetty where the submarines were, and they would... While, the, while still at the jetty, they would submerge the submarines. But they were so scared of something going wrong and not being able to surface again that they had, like, a crane on the jetty ready and attached to the submarine, ready to haul it up if something went wrong. So they'd submerge it for five minutes, come up, and, you know, wipe the nervous sweat from their brow and pat each other on the back for a successful mission. And then they were able to claim... <laughs> Then they were able to claim that they were seaworthy and operational and uh, could claim all of their, uh, you know, extra bonuses because of that. So um, they had to do that once a year. (laughs) So the point was that um, we don't have to worry too much about the Indonesian Navy at this stage because they... No, I wouldn't have thought so. They've got a hopeless capacity to um, look after high technology equipment and places like Vietnam and others have got much smaller countries which are much better military and Indonesia's military is all spent looking inwards on internal matters getting ready for you know coups and things like that rather than externally getting ready to invade Australia so um so that was an Indonesian submarine story from episode 45 on the 18th of May 2016 mm. and in this article Scott he also mentioned a really interesting thing during the Whitlam uh, government period um blah 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 and it says about the whitlam government um both sides were at fault the whitlam government did however set australia on the path to freer trade with a 25 percent across the board cut in tariffs it 
being the Whitlam government, refused to bow to the Department of Defence and knocked back the Navy's plan for locally designed and built light destroyers. It chose instead to buy off-the-shelf frigates from the US. The Department of Defence went into quite a sulk. There you go. So if we knock, well, knock back... we've done it before. We should do it again. Yeah, if we knock back these, these subs and get an off-the-shelf nuclear trio of subs, we'll simply be replicating one of the decisions of the Whitlam government. There you go. Exactly. So there's a bit of potentially history repeating itself. Mm. Um, and uh, what else did he say? Um, oh, just about the cost of... Actually, he does mention the cost of the subs, I think. Yeah, for, at, a government that, for a government that presumably has some regard for markets and free trade, its decision on a $50 billion submarine and naval build in Adelaide is remarkable. Hmm. Christopher Pine must be really a national treasurer if the government needs to spend so much money to help keeping him public life. Hmm. He, he makes hmm. the assertion that it's potentially it's going to cost $4 million for every job created. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, it's it's... It's absolutely phenomenal how, how much money is being spent per job. <laughs> it is phenomenal. Ah, yeah. oh, dear. From episode 48 on the 8th of June, 2016. Scott, submarines. Yes, I I've, saw that you said that you had an update on submarines, hmm, so I've, go for it. I've changed my position slightly. Oh, you have? Mm. So we, I think we'd previously said uh, instead of 12 nuclear submarines... Instead of 12 conventionally powered submarines, let's get three nuclear ones. Be done with it. Yeah. Mm. Well, I did a bit more reading, Scott, and here's the view that I've come to, is that um, if we just want submarines to be hanging around our northern border waiting for the enemy to come in with troop ships so that we can torpedo them and sink them, then what we really need are relatively small submarines that are quiet and can just sit there and and they don't have to travel huge distances in with fast speed. They just need to sit and wait quietly and shoot. Yep. So that's that's the primary task that I'd like a submarine to yeah, do. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. The other thing that a submarine could do would be to go out into the South China Sea and attack China. <laughs> <laughs> or engage with you know troop movements with US forces or like be involved in superpower games you know in the uh, out there and if you're going to do that then you need a really big sub that's fast moving and um, can travel large distances and that's where you'd need um, a nuclear, a nuclear powered version of the sort of thing that we're currently signing up for. Yeah. And I don't think we've got any business being in the South China Sea playing war games and potentially either invading China or meeting China out there. Um, we should just be defensive with our defence force. And um, so, Scott. Weak, a little, a little tiny sub that is just going to sit there and wait. Um, we can get a, a Japanese version for less than a billion dollars. That's how cheap that they right? are. Yeah, off the shelf, seven hundred and twenty million dollars. You can get yourself a sub. 
So I reckon, Scott, rather than three nuclear subs, which are going to be a bit big and a bit noisy and a bit cumbersome in the shallow waters of our northern boundary, we should have half a dozen little ones, which is going to be the price of um, one and a half nuclear subs, and be yeah. done with it. And, and so you end up it. buying half a dozen of them for less than six billion dollars in total. So yes. that's down from fifty billion dollars. Yeah, that sounds yeah. sounds quite reasonable to me. Yeah, that's my that's my sub position at the moment. Are you happy with that? Oh, I am. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> from episode fifty-seven on the tenth of August two thousand and sixteen. So there's a there's a right wing. No, well, there's a there's a think tank, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, who's heavily involved and got links with the Defence Department, and all of a sudden they're starting to say, hmm, maybe we need nuclear-powered submarines instead of, instead of conventionally powered. So I don't think it's anything... Um, it's, I don't think it's... Um, anything out of the blue i think they've been listening to our podcast uh, i think that's right so um, you know and they've taken what you've said on board and they've looked into it and said yeah nukes are the way to go yeah see and i've stolen it all from john lenergy's blog i think they're probably more likely been reading his blog but um <laughs> but that's where we're that's where we're headed i'll make a prediction scott in 20 mm. you know within 20 years time the decision if we're still going for big subs like that They'll be nuclear powered, or they'll be wanting to make them nuclear powered. Well, in twenty years' time, isn't that when the, um, the this next generation of subs are due to be rolled out? Yeah. So at some point, they're going to have to switch to nuclear propulsion for them. If you're going to have a big sub, it's going to have to be nuclear powered. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. I just wish they'd have you know half a dozen small sub- subs instead. But anyway. Mm. From episode 62 on the 14th of September, 2016. Scott, we get an opportunity to talk about submarines this week. (laughs) (laughs) Saw this article. I bet you were very happy when you saw this one, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, dear listener, just a little insight into my life, but, you know, scouring news feeds and blogs and whatever. and, And when this one popped out about submarines, I was just jumping for joy. So this one, um, uh, got a link to it from ABC News website. Dick Smith says, we're being conned. Um, A group of prominent businessmen, including Dick Smith and John Singleton, have taken out a full-page ad in the Australian newspaper suggesting the public is being conned over the submarine project. The Australian government stipulated the winning contract would need to use conventional power, ruling out larger nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, Mr Smith said the redesigned version of the submarine would have to be converted to a diesel engine, but he told ABC Adelaide it was a ludicrous plan and he believed it would never happen. Quoting Dick Smith here, So the plan is for us to buy a nuclear submarine design and then convert it to a piston submarine. Now, no one has ever done that in the world, and in fact, when I talk to submarine experts... They say it is so ridiculous, so we're being conned. Mr Smith said if the government's real agenda was to use nuclear technology, it should be upfront about it. Um, 
the world's coming round to my view. At least Dick Smith and John Singleton are coming round to it, Scott. Well, yeah, I mean, they are coming around to it because it makes perfect sense that you don't buy something that's designed to run with a nuclear propulsion system and convert it to run on diesel piston engines. It's crazy. It's a pretty fundamental design change. Um, it is a very fundamental design change. Mm. It's absolutely crazy that they would consider doing it. Yes. Um Nick Xenophon said more detail about the submarine's project was needed, but he questioned the motives behind Mr Smith's campaign. Um, South Australian Defence Industries Minister Martin Hamilton Smith said he trusted the decision. I think the Navy chose that rather than the government, and you have to trust their judgement, Mr Hamilton Smith said. Because, gee, it's not like any, you know... Armed forces have ever got us into trouble with bad mistakes in the past, haven't no, they? No, that's exactly it. You know, you, you, you can't um, you can't ever question anything the armed forces have done, have you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so that's good. I did like the South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall hit out at Mr Smith on Twitter calling the businessman a sad old man. Mm. Looked like it, the advert, was scribbled on the back of a serviette after a long lunch. Sad mm. old man. Scott, I mean, I mean up until now... Uh, objection to the submarines has only appeared in two obscure places. One is John Menadou's blog, and the other one is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Like, yes. that is the only two places that there's been negative comment about these submarines in the last 12 months, and finally it started to hit mainstream media because mm. someone like Dick Smith and, and Singleton actually put their money in their pockets and put a big bat ad in a newspaper. Like, that's the only way it could happen. Yeah, and it's crazy to, it's crazy to ignore them. It really would be crazy. Mm. Well, do listener, if you've been listening to the last 61 episodes, you are ahead of the game on the submarine score and fully informed. So from episode 71 on the 16th of November, 2016. Scott, um, submarines I get to mention. <laughs> friend of mine sent me a link and uh, it's to a, a website devoted to the submarine issue in Australia and it's uh, operated by a guy, Gary Johnston, Submarines for Australia. And uh, he says here, uh, the Weekend Australian reported, Rear Admiral Stephen Johnson, US Navy retired, claimed that Anyone who says you can't put a diesel engine into a nuclear submarine design doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> of course he'd say that. So, um, uh, Yeah, because he's got a job as the GM of submarines in the Australian Defence Force, yes. Defence Department's Capability and sustain Sustainment Group. Yes. So, you know... Uh, <sighs> With our problem with, well, not our our issues with Donald Trump as highlighting that we don't know what our relationship is with the US and how our alliance is and, you know, if we've got a problem, whether they'd come to help, who knows? And one of the things about the submarines is that this proposed solution, we're not going to get submarines for 15 years and our current fleet are just going to be rusted hulks in a matter of a couple of years, we've got a long time where we'll be actually operating without any submarines because of this stupid decision. Not only are we getting the wrong ones that won't actually work, 
But we've got to wait 15 years to find that out. And in the meantime, we are potentially defenceless when we could be buying an off-the-shelf cheap submarine from Japan. From Japan. And have it virtually next week. Mm. So, um, anyway. Uh, it, It really is very maddening. I mean, like, the Australian government would have been better off continuing to throw money at the car industry rather mm. than this nonsense here mm. of propping up submarines. Mm. You know. So um, this article makes the point that um, basically the management um, in charge of this project are ex-boat drivers and um, they've got no actual expertise in project management, but they get the job anyway and they are hopelessly out of their depth and they're tasked with spending $50 billion and uh, who knows, Scott? Maybe fifty billion dollars. That's that's. It's going to end up being higher than that. Yes. Yep. Mm. Yep. So maybe with Donald Trump, that'll cause us to reevaluate things, but unlikely. From episode one hundred and two on the twenty eighth of June two thousand and seventeen, Scott. It's been a while, but I get to say submarines. Dear, dear listener, if you're only for those a recent, of you playing drinking game at home, yes. <laughs> if you're only a recent convert to the podcast, I've got a thing about our submarine contract. In summary, we're spending fifty billion dollars on twelve massive submarines that are normally nuclear powered, and we're paying extra to have them converted to diesel. So. Why do you have a big submarine? Because you're going to make a big expedition into the South China Sea and potentially attack China or somebody. That's why you need a big one. But if your intention is just to be defensive and to shoot troop ships that are coming our way, then you just need a small submarine that just sits down and waits for the enemy to come and is extremely quiet. And you can pick those up for under... A billion dollars each. You could have twelve of them for about ten billion. Mm. We could save ourselves, dear listener, forty billion dollars if we just took off-the-shelf submarines from Japan rather than converting nuclear submarines by the French. One of the arguments put forward for this ridiculous idea was, oh. Well, you know, they'll be doing a lot of the work in South Australia and that's going to save some jobs. Well, surprise, surprise, dear listener, article came out which basically says that, you know, the CEO of uh, that French company that's building the submarines who said... DCNS? Yeah, that 90% of the build would occur in Australia. Well, he doesn't work for us anymore and funny, you know... We can't really commit to that figure anymore. It's all a bit rubbery and I just don't know what's going to happen. That's where we stand now with our $50 billion contract that we are guaranteed nothing in terms of... It was outrageously expensive what it was going to cost to employ 1,200 shipbuilders in South Australia. When we could have... We could have sub- continued to subsidise the uh, car manufacturing industry for decades to come, yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. So that's, you know, that's a disaster that somebody at some point has to stop. And there's another disaster, Scott, with F-35 fighters that we're getting from the US military. From episode 113 on the 13th of September 2017. One thing I said to her, Scott, was... Um, 
please, you know, if you get a chance to talk about policies, can can you please raise this one particular issue that nobody talks about? And she said, what's that? Scott, what do you reckon the issue was? What's a favourite uh, hobby horse of mine that nobody talks about that I like to talk about all the time? The nodding politician? No, no not that one. <laughs> okay. Yes. Submarines? <laughs> I said, submarines, <laughs> Meredith. Nobody talks about it. She said, what do you mean about submarines? What's, what's there to know about submarines? So I just gave a very quick two-minute submarine 101 and promised to send her some more information. So fingers crossed, Scott, that... That the <laughs> that reason as a major part of their platform will look at um, the submarine issue. That would be great. Yeah. From episode one hundred and seventeen, October two thousand and seventeen. While I was on the John Menadue blog, I looked across to the right hand menu, and to my delight, Scott, I saw an article. And what topic do you think it could be that could possibly give me delight? Uh, submarines? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Trust the John Menadue I've not blog. read this one. No, so you haven't. On. Uh, that's right. I was testing you, see. Um, great piece by uh, John Stanford um, about the submarines. He's a director of Inside Economics uh, in a former life, he was head of the Industries Division in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I mean, he knows a bit about how yeah. politics and works and government. Uh, um, basically, he's put the subs at $4.6 because we'd worked it out at 4.18, but he's got a $4.6 billion figure. Calls it an eye-watering price for a conventionally powered submarine. Uh, you know... Most conventionally powered ones cost less than $1 billion. And we're paying $4.6 billion for each one. Um, yeah. Yeah. He said here the, uh, the proposal involves major technical challenges. Nobody has ever converted a nuclear submarine to conventional power before. Many submarine experts doubt that it can be done. The hull forms are different. The use of pump jet propulsion... Uh, uh, which is a breakthrough technology in nuclear submarines, may not work in a conventionally powered one because of the lower speeds. And he's got this other thing here, um, which I hadn't heard of before, air-independent propulsion, Scott. So if you are in a conventionally powered submarine, uh, you've got batteries in there and you can charge those batteries and you can swim around underwater for about five days. But then you've got to surface, and that's a really short time frame. And, of course, when you surface, you become exposed <coughs> to the enemy. So what conventionally powered submarines have is this air-independent propulsion, which allows them to propel the submarine without surfacing and... There's various types of things, but they're enclosed systems where they might have um, oxygen in compressed tanks that they can use in a closed uh, system to fire up um, a motor, if you like, and and expel the uh, fumes and whatever into the water. So, um, okay. So an air, yeah, and there's various different types of these things. So 
when your battery's running low, you can then resort to that. And the thing is, in nuclear subs, you don't have those systems. But in a conventional sub, you really need those systems. It's completely useless without it. He says that an air-independent propulsion is sin qua none, uh, without which nothing, for an advanced um, conventionally powered sub in the 21st century. If you don't have it, you're just crazy, in your words, Scott. And mm. the, um, the proposal for these submarines does not include uh, air-independent propulsion. Oh, you <laughs> So we're paying four times the price for a sub yep. that doesn't even have one yep. of the basics. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it'll be surfacing every four days rather than every three weeks. And every time it bobs up, you know, there you go. It's going to be exposed to the enemy, yeah. Yeah. It's just... Uh, why are they doing this? He says one theory is that uh, it's just a way of eventually getting a nuclear version of a submarine that, you know, a couple of years down the track, we're just going to go, oh, it's too hard to do all these conversions because of these things. We'll just have to make them nuclear. And it's a way of sort of getting a nuclear sub without having to um, go through the public debate over it. And he was speaking to a senior defence official who he quotes as saying, if you ask someone to devise a new submarine program with the highest risk factors at every stage, you could not have done a much better job. It will almost <laughs> certainly end in tears and possibly a catastrophe. Yeah, it's starting to look like we should have bought them from the Japanese. Yep. Yeah. Bought a nice, quiet, small, conventionally powered subs, 12 of them, about 600,000 each, and they could sit along the coastline. 600 million each. 600 million each, sit along the northern coastline and, you know, pop off any convoy of troops headed our way. And, oh, gee, yeah. we wouldn't be able to participate in uh, naval manoeuvres in the South China Sea. What a shame. Well, yeah, I was listening to a uh, podcast this afternoon and I'm not convinced we should be involved in the South China Sea. Of course we shouldn't be. We've got no business <laughs> being in the South China Sea. Yeah. We're not a superpower. America wouldn't no, want us there superpower. anyway. I mean, the Americans really could, the Americans could do whatever they wanted there anyway. Yeah. yeah. Without us. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. we could do with uh, the money we're going to be wasting on those submarines, and they're not going to work. We're going to be actually worse off because they're just not going to work. They're going to be noisy. They're going to be coming up and burping for air. They're not going to be able yeah. to lie in wait and effectively shoot a convoy of troops coming from China or whatever. We're actually yeah. going to be left undefended because we're going to have these rusting hulks in some workshop in South Australia. And you can yeah, see it now. Oh. South Australia's going to end up with an industry. Yeah. <laughs> From episode 130 on the 18th of January, 2018. I get a chance to talk about submarines, Scott. <laughs> did, you, did you know that India has a $3 billion nuclear submarine? No, I didn't know that. Okay. No. 
Just here's a quiz for you, Scott. You've got a $3 billion submarine, okay? And, yep. and you're going to submerge your submarine. What's the f- number one thing you should make sure before you submerge? That it can filter out the carbon dioxide, I suppose. <laughs> no, a bit more basic than that. Okay, um, that it doesn't leak? Uh, well, close. Uh, you know, as you're about to submerge, the, dear listener, the number one thing to make sure is that you've actually closed the hatch. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. Oh, good God. Yes, an article here. Um their sub is out of commission because when they uh, went to submerge, they didn't check that all of the hatches were closed and, funnily enough, got inundated with the water and knocked out a whole lot of really expensive things. <laughs> so uh, Bloody hell. So that's... Uh, that's a major stuff up, that is, isn't it? Yeah. That's only a th- Look, they had a cheap one. You know, their submarine is $3 billion. Uh, $2.9 billion. You know, ours are going to be 4.16, so uh, so that was a cheap one in the scheme of things. It could have been worse. Hopefully our sailors will be taught to close the hatch when ours, when ours eventually arrives. Uh, one would have thought so. Yes. From episode 131 on the 24th of January 2018. Hey, uh, mm. just on submarines. So last week, <laughs> dear listener, you might remember the story of the Indian... Uh, submarine where the hatch was left open and causing enormous damage. And we, at the same time, had a story about the secret and how if you wish for something, then according to the secret, uh, it would come true. And funnily enough, um, dear listeners, on our website, we have an ability to leave a voicemail message and, uh, and... it's great when people ring through with a voicemail message. And we've been fortunate enough to receive a voicemail which explains the Indian submarine incident. So just sit back and listen to this. Goodness gracious me, it is always dive, dive, dive on this submarine. Oh, I want the sun on my skin and the wind in my hair. Why can't I have this? Oh, what's this book? The Secret? If I just wish, I can have. I, Raju Singh, wish for an outdoor life, for the sun, for the wind in my hair. Uh oh. I think you should expect uh, communication from the <laughs> Indian embassy in Canberra over that. That's extremely offensive. Oh, Raji Singh, you have excelled yourself. On this yeah, thank you very much. Is it Raji Singh, was it? Raji Singh. Raji Singh, thank you so much. That's really brought a warm feeling to my heart. Oh, thank you. Raji, I listened to that about three times and really <laughs> wet myself every time. That was fantastic. Yeah. And finally, from episode 134. As the, the, the topic is, you know, should we be concerned about Indonesia invading us? And for that matter, should we be concerned about China invading us? And dear listener, a special treat for you. A new 
contributor to the podcast. Han too is uh, I recorded an interview with Han just yesterday um, during a massive Brisbane thunderstorm. And um, so here it is. I'll play it for you now. And it's everything you needed to know about Australia's military and our capacity to deal with Indonesia and China in a nutshell. Dear listener, we've got a new character to introduce to you to the podcast. His pseudonym is Han Tu, and he's uh, one of my mates, and he's a bit of an expert on Indonesia. And given our discussion last week about uh, our alliance with America and how we needed to foster that because at any minute now the Indonesians could invade us, I thought I'd get um, Han Tu on to talk about Indonesia because he's a bit of an expert. So, Han, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Um, it's nice to be here. Lovely to be uh, invited to uh, discuss a little bit about Indonesia, a very um, important uh, part of my life. Yes. Well, just to give the listener uh, what background you can, because I understand you know, certain parts are sensitive and you can't say them, but what can you say that would give the listener some confidence that you actually know what you're talking about? Okay, uh, you know, that's all fair enough. Um, uh, The bottom line, I suppose, with all this is that uh, I was uh, teaching in Indonesia, in Indonesian language, to Indonesian students um, at a master's level um, and talking to them about uh, military science and uh, a few other topics related to military science. Yep, And, and you're actually considering a PhD of some sort at the moment. That's right, yeah. I've been accepted to do a PhD. I have a, um, a number of master's degrees and uh, do a PhD uh, in um, Indonesian military history and Indonesian military politics. Yep. So by way of background, last week um, I read an article that was talking about Malcolm Turnbull and how our relationship with us, with America was fantastic, as close as it could be, and we're a rock-solid ally and I was suggesting maybe that wasn't the best thing because with friends like America, at times, who needs enemies? Because they, they get us into a lot of trouble. And my colleagues on the podcast were saying, well, we really need America because what if Indonesia decides to invade us? And I put forward that the chances of that were fairly slim um, and that wasn't an issue to worry about. But am I right or am I wrong or is there a different answer, Han Tu? Yeah, I, I I think that um, in in some ways that you're both right. You are absolutely absolutely right as far as Indonesia being a threat to Australia. There's no there's no doubt that in the uh, foreseeable future that uh, Indonesia poses no threat to Australia whatsoever. Um, if we look at um, how you decide whether something is a threat or not, there's two parts that you need to look at and consider. The first part is does the one party have uh, intent um, towards another party and the second party is do they have the capability and uh, we can look at Indonesia in that light we can say do they have at the present moment any intent to uh, attack Australia and the answer to that is absolutely not there's no no reason why Indonesia would attack Australia no reason uh, through domestic politics no reason through international politics in fact Indonesia being the largest economy in Southeast Asia is very keen to maintain its relationship with Australia because Australia provides a lot of 
goods and a lot of services that Indonesia doesn't have and can't provide for themselves. And if you think about the food um, that Australia provides to Indonesia, beef in particular, mm-hmm. um, without that they would uh, indeed find it very difficult to um, feed their feed their people. So there's no way that they're going to stop that. And uh, to think that Indonesia would attack Australia over food is just, um, uh, in in terms of old English or old Australians, malarkey, there's just no chance that that's going to happen. If you look at domestic politics, uh, there's no reason why Australia would be put forward as a target for Indonesia. So in, in terms of intent, there's no intent for Indonesia to attack Australia. Mm-hmm. Then if we look at capability, um, Indonesia has a very large standing army, but its navy is um, really... Uh, a number of old rust buckets and a couple of uh, perhaps uh, ships that uh, would hardly pose any sort of threat to anybody except themselves. How's, and, their, how's uh, their submarine going? Well, I, I used to laugh because uh, some of the guys I knew over there would uh, collect their submarine every every year. They had a, an old Russian whiskey-class submarine and it was tied up to the dock and every year they'd all climb aboard and the uh, the submarine would be submerged at the dock, and they had a crane there just in case the thing couldn't make it up again. Um, and but doing that, they all you know, oh gee, that's over for another year where I can collect my submariner's pay. And um, that's that's about their capability with the uh, submarines. They really um, are not uh, able to uh, operate in uh, what we would call blue water. They they would have, they are capable perhaps in white water, but uh, white water. If you look on a on a naval map, you'll see that uh, there's white water which is shallow and then blue water which is deep, mm-hmm. and it's unlikely that they would operate very successfully outside of their own archipelago. So, for them to mount some sort of a martyr, um, let's go back one step and look at what you would need militarily to um, have a beachhead on Australia. Mm -hmm. In 1942, the Japanese did a very large study um, of what they would require to form a beachhead in the north of Australia, and they found that when they did their uh, all their estimates, that they would need a minimum of nine divisions. Nine divisions means uh, something in the order of 100,000 supported soldiers um, landed in the one place at the one time. So somehow you've got to get all those people from one place to another. The Japanese. How, how many people could you put on a troop ship? Like if you're having how many? Well, if you know how long's a piece of string, um, how big's the troop ship? You know, if you look at something like the Canberra that was used in the Falklands, you yep. might get uh, something in the order of three or four thousand onto each ship. Um, if you look at uh, a big luxury cru- cru- cruise liner that you might want to convert into a troop ship. You could probably think about putting a division on that without equipment because they are able to take uh, the people, but then you've got to have all the equipment. You've got to think about the support equipment, the vehicles, the tanks, the artillery, and on and on it goes. And all this stuff has to be um, transported on cargo ships. So you would have an armada of uh, civilian vessels that would be escorted uh, because they don't have the military vessels to take any sort, anything like that number of people. Um, you'd have to have um, civilian ships that have been converted, and then um, the difficulty is getting these. These are not roll-on, roll-off type ships, and so it'd be quite difficult to land all this equipment uh, in yeah. a very short period of time. Specialised military ships even find it difficult to do this sort of thing. And in fact, American Australia every two years uh, operate. 
um, in off the Queensland coast, Rockhampton. We're all aware of the exercise that will take place off there mm-hmm. to actually do this and land, you know, some few hundred, a few thousand troops in in an exercise. Whereas we're talking now trying to land a hundred thousand troops to be really quite effective, and that's just not um, possible for the Indonesians. They don't have the shipping, they don't have the naval vessels to support that that type of uh, armada that would have to be formed. They don't have the air support. They don't have surveillance. They don't have any submarine warfare. And in order to develop all those sort of capabilities takes a very, very long time. It's not a matter of just going out and buying the ships. For us uh, in Australia, we have long been looking at uh, anti-submarine warfare, anti-surface warfare. We've looked at submarines, and as, as we've seen, we're going to spend another $50 billion dollars on submarines to support our capability north of Australia to stop somebody from actually landing on Australia. It's a it's so a bit of a sore it's a bit of a sore point with me, um, to the fifty billion on some on those submarines, but we'll bypass that for the moment. Keep keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't I don't necessarily support the spending of that sort of money on submarines, but um, that is what the government's decided to do, and uh, they've decided that the submarines are the, the best deterrent at this point in time to stop people coming across the air sea gap. So, if you think about um, aircraft, if you, you say, okay, well, we won't do it by ship, we'll do it by aircraft, and we'll have paratroopers come to Australia and we'll transport them in, in, um, in aircraft. Now, if you look at um, a normal um, sort of aircraft like a C-130, which would be uh, capable of uh, dropping paratroopers, something like that uh, will carry probably 80 to 100 fully armed uh, men that are going to drop out of the aircraft. And uh, so you can do the maths as well yeah. as I can. If you want to do 100,000, you need a 1,000 aircraft. And yeah. um, they've got, you know, a very small number of aircraft that are capable of uh, dropping off paratroops. And uh, most of those are old uh, B-model Hercules aircraft, and they're pretty much beyond their capability at this point in time. So the Indonesians neither have intent nor do they have capability, and the capability, we would see them building the capability. They would be uh, giving us some sort of indication of their intent a long time before they would even be capable of doing anything against Australia. So yep. you really need to be thinking... 10 years uh, advanced lead time from when you start developing these sort of capabilities, you're probably even thinking more like 20 years, particularly against, uh, you know, an angry um, Western well-developed society like ours that has uh, quite a lot of high technology, cap- you know, high technology available to us in, um, in, in a military sense. So you've got to then try and counter the technology that the opposition has, and the Indonesians would take a very, very long time to develop any sort of level of capability, skills to counter Australia. Okay. In, in so, so let's accept then that Indonesia is such a long way off that we could see it coming a mile away and do something about it if if it was mm. going to happen. What about China? If China decided to, you know, att- this is when us. this is when you start looking at uh, who your friends are. Yep. And um, and that's why at the very start I go back to the comment that I said that you're both right in many ways, yep. um, and you're right as far as Indonesia is concerned. But you, you know your your colleague is also right as far as having America as a friend. Yep. Um, think about Ch- China at the moment um, have some 
experimental aircraft off one aircraft carrier, they could probably mount a couple of squadrons of, of aircraft and they have not even a full carrier group available to them at the present time. And America usually around the place operates four full carrier groups. So when you look at American capability versus Chinese capability, it's cheese and chalk for power projection. Yep. And so the Chinese uh, attempting to project power through the Indonesian archipelago would also find it very difficult. This is why we need to keep Indonesia as a friend because, A, the Indonesians would want to stop them from projecting power through their archipelago in the first instance. Yep. And they, they would need to do that because to get to Australia, there's really three routes through Indonesia or around New Guinea or you're going to have to come a very long way around. And to do that, our capability with um, our submarines our anti-surface uh, capability and our anti-subsurface capability would make it very difficult for even the Chinese to bring an armada large enough to actually land on Australian soil. Yep. Now, it's, it's, it's well and good to say, oh, they've got a million soldiers, but, you know, how are they going to get here? They're going to swim. Yep. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. That's why our white papers have always focused on the air-sea gap to the north of Australia and have always said that any threat to Australia would be through, not necessarily from, the Indonesian archipelago. And that's a big distinction between those two things. And even China at this point in time, there is no way that they could threaten Australia in that way. Right. Yep. Okay. Let's assume that China uh, ramps up and gets enough equipment. Can we trust the Americans to help us? If oh, Well, that's, that's a question that you've got to ask. So when... When you look at spending on, uh, on, on military, on arms and all that sort of stuff and the actual uh, money that's spent around the world, America um, outspends everyone else combined. Mm. And so you look, at, you look at that and you go, if you look at all the wars that have been fought since uh, Vietnam, who, who has won? And which side do you think it, it's best to be on, whether they are likely to support you or not? And the answer is, is that uh, if you're on the American side, you're going to win. Um, if you're on the American side, you're not likely to lose. Um, let's put it that way. Because unless, you're in a, yeah, unless you're in Afghanistan, maybe? Or well, I mean, it's interesting you talk about these places. Yeah. Is that, um, you know, who wins, who loses? Uh, if you want to go back to the 1970s and talk about Vietnam, everyone talks about, um, you know, how America lost the war in Vietnam. Um, yeah. America, ha has America really lost the war? If you're, you know... Uh, you know, living in middle-class America, um, you've got a pretty nice life. If you're living in Vietnam, until very recently, you were still living in the Stone Age. Yes. So who won and who lost? You know, that's that's a it, it's a moot point. Yeah, but know, had had they never had they never entered yeah. Vietnam, the people still would have a very comfortable life in North America, irrespective. But I, I guess that that one doesn't matter so much. But um, well, uh, it's. it's it's where you've got to look at uh, a history and about the insurance policies that Australia has taken over the last, uh, you know, 50 years yep. um, in order to think that we are safe from, you know, threats of a, of a more global nature. You know, you, you look at Russia and, 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 again, is Russia a threat to Australia? Do they have the capability? Yeah, they, they probably could if they focused all of their military capability and all their transport capability on coming to Australia, but it's a hell of a long way. Yep. And... You know, if you've got friends like America, you know, the Russians showed in World War Two how you need to uh, fight these sort of wars, and uh, it's to it's to burn behind uh, as you go, as you 
fight all the way from point A to point B, you, you just have a scorched earth policy so that uh, they, their lines of communication, their lines of supply get longer and longer and longer and more difficult, more difficult, and your lines of supply get shorter and shorter. You know, Kokoda is a very good example of that. Um, we could have done a much better in Malaysia uh, before the fall of Singapore had the Australian High Command had its way because Australia wanted to use a scorched earth policy against the Japanese, but the Brits thought that Fortress Singapore was uh, was impregnable. And so they said, no, we don't need to have that sort of policy. Um, of course, uh, as we know now, in retrospect, uh, the Brits were wrong. Um, yep. And the scorched earth policy would have worked uh, uh, much better than their plan. Yep. So uh, when talking minor countries you know, like Indonesia, they just don't have the capability. When we're talking major countries like China or Russia, we could assume the Americans would be interested enough to stop them dominating uh, this part of the world and would would step in just um, in terms of protecting their own patch, if if nothing else. Mm, That's an interesting assumption, you know. um, Yeah, I I like the word you used, we can assume. Yep. um, I, I tend to think more... Well, it's like a question, so... <laughs> we can hope... Right. We can hope that that's what's going to happen. Um, yeah. Again, uh, you know, China would have to... We would see the threat coming. Um, at the moment, there is no intent from China. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let alone do they have the capability, there is no intent. And so the threat doesn't exist. Um, do they have the capability in, in the future? Should they change their intent? Uh, that's a, that's another good question, and uh, I would have to sit down and carefully look at what uh, the Chinese capability is. But even the capability Australia has today would probably be enough to counter a, an, a you know an attack from China because the distances that are involved, the capability, the amount of equipment, the amount of people that you need to land is yeah. is enormous yep. to actually try and form that beachhead. Yep. And um, it's, you know, you're talking superpower stuff to, to get to this point. Yep. And China is not yet in the realms of a military superpower and Russia is probably past its prime. Yep. And uh, the Americans could do it, uh, but, you know, stay on the right side of America, no intent, uh, capability. Do the Americans have the capability? Yes, they do, but they don't have intent, so America doesn't form a threat. Yep. So you stay on the right side of the Americans, which I think is uh, a very good policy and the insurance that we've taken out by going into Afghanistan, by uh, supporting them in Iraq and these other places, that has um, do, do, given do, us the insurance policy that we do, need, I think, do, uh, to... Do you think it does, though? Do you think that... Do you think, like, the present administration with Trump... Do you think that cuts anything with him? Like, if if somebody did decide to invade us, somebody like Trump, I just have the feeling wouldn't wouldn't pay heed to any of that history and would just decide in the moment whether it was worth him, worth America's interest getting involved or not, and wouldn't care about the history. Mm. It's interesting that you raise that point, and and the point that I would raise it was actually I was watching Question Time today uh, for the federal parliament and Peter Dutton got out uh, to answer a question uh, concerning uh, Manus and Nauru and uh, he quoted some facts. Um, I think that another 135 had gone from Manus and Nauru to the United States and they had actually departed and uh, the United States had accepted these people. Now, that 
uh, agreement had been made between Turnbull and Obama, and Trump said that he would not honour that, and finally came around to honouring that agreement, and that agreement has been honoured. Yep. And it's totally against what he personally wanted to do. However, the administration uh, in the United States had enough power to convince him that he needed to honour his uh, the America's commitments to Australia and to anybody else. And so I think you can take that as a an indicator as to which way it would go. And I believe because of the history and because of the way we have acted over the past, um, you know, it's getting on towards 80 or 90 years, um, I think that uh, we would be able to count on the Americans for a lot of support. Okay, Orhan too. I think you covered the Indonesian issue for the dear listener and um, and I'll call on you again in the future as issues crop up. Yep, I'm willing and pleased to be part of such a wonderful podcast. <laughs> All right, Han too. I'll let you get back to whatever you were, you were doing and um, I'll see you Thursday night. <laughs> All right, mate. All good. All right. Thanks, mate. See ya. Catch you then. Bye. Bye. For coming in at such short notice, I thought the best way to proceed was to get everyone in the one room. Good thinking. Okay, you're all right. I'll come straight to the point. This white paper is recommending we spend close to $400 billion over the forward estimates. Now, at some point, the PM is going to be asked a very simple question. In order to protect us from which enemy? Hmm. It's... So hard to say. 400 billion, pick one. A regional player. Specifically, Colonel. An Indo-Pacific regional player. More specifically? Indo-Asia-Pacific. That's broader. Who are you leaving out? Europe. Yeah, I sort of need a country. Or an unaligned player. No, a country. One that might threaten us. Just one. Yeah. I wouldn't want to raise tensions. Where? In this room. You know what? I'll name one and you just nod. China. Okay. And what exactly are we protecting? Strategic interests. Specifically, Colonel. Indo-Pacific strategic Again, interests. Again, really specifically. Indo-Asia-Pacific yeah. strategic interests. You know interests. what? I'll say it and then you nod. Our trade routes. Yeah. And who is our number one trading partner? Shall we use an odd system? Sure. China? Yeah. So under this scenario, we're spending close to $30 billion a year to protect our trade with China from China. And that doesn't strike anyone at this table as odd? 